chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, we have now reached the stage where Jesus has come into the last week before his death. And as he enters Jerusalem, we will take up the story once more, but first let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to look upon your word, we ask once more, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we may truly see you, that you would open our ears that we may truly hear your voice, and that you would open our hearts that we may truly believe, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it's been interesting um, this past few weeks. Uh, the events are about the events surrounding Libya. Um, the international community's uh, response to the events um, were mixed. They were very mixed, to say the least, and still are. Um, our own Prime Minister uh, was the one who led the calls for intervention, and yet others are very skeptical of, of the use of military force. Now, I'll leave it to you to judge which side is uh, the correct one in the debate. But it has been fascinating to see, um, for those who, who desire intervention, the search for a legal justification. Nobody was prepared to act unless there was, and I quote the Prime Minister, a clear legal basis for intervention. In other words, what was necessary for any military intervention was a legitimate, was it, to be, it needed to be legitimate in international law. Very simply, they needed the authority to act. Nobody was willing to act unless they had the sufficient authority to do so. Authority was the key issue. Indeed, authority is very often the key issue. There are systems of authority that affect all our lives. Most recently, you will have received a census through your door. You are required to fill it in and send it back. And if you don't, the government has the authority to fine you. Whether or not that's right or wrong, but they have the authority to demand that you fill it out. Or you might uh, decide to park your car on a double yellow line, and the traffic warden catches you. Uh, he or she has the authority to issue you with a parking ticket, and you're required to pay the fine or face the legal consequences. Or we could talk of parental authority, or the lack thereof, maybe. We all face different types of authority in our lives. We all bow to different authorities and exercise different authorities that are given to us. And as we reach this point in Luke's gospel, in the account of Jesus' life, as he enters Jerusalem for the last time, we are confronted with a question about his authority. Now, if you look at chapter 20, verse 2, you will see that the Jerusalem authorities ask Jesus outright by what authority he is doing all these things. Was he legitimate? That's the question. And it's the question that would ultimately seal Jesus' fate only a few days later in the week. Was Jesus in a position 
to do these things? Was he in a position to lead Israel, or was that the sole task of the leaders and the teachers of the law in Jerusalem? As Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the relationship between himself and the scribes and Pharisees and those who were in authority in Jerusalem now becomes openly hostile. The nearer Jesus gets to his goal, the more sinister becomes the opposition to him. And if you remember back to chapter 9, um, Jesus uh, has been on a journey that would end in Jerusalem. After the transfiguration, he set his face towards Jerusalem, where he would accomplish his exodus. That journey has been a long and winding one. It wasn't a straight journey, but its ultimate destination was Jerusalem. That is where he was intending to go at this moment in time for the Passover. On the way there, he has taught his disciples much about the kingdom of God. He has predicted uh, that he would be killed and rise again, yet not very many people have so far realized what he has been saying. His identity has been revealed at least to his disciples, and now as Jesus comes to enter Jerusalem, he openly associates himself in public with the claim that he is the Messiah. Before this point, only his disciples um, knew this. Anyone else, Jesus told them to keep quiet. But now in a great public display, Jesus enters Jerusalem openly as the Messiah. In chapter 19, verses 28 to 44, we have Luke's recording of what is known as the triumphant entry. And it's these events which are full of imagery from the Old Testament of the Messiah. Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead to get a colt, that is a young donkey, which no one has ever ridden before. And as they come back with it, they use their cloaks as for a saddle, and they put Jesus on this donkey, and now he heads for the city. People start to place their coats on the road for him, a kind of red carpet, if you like. And he comes down towards the city from the Mount of Olives, and the, and the disciples begin to sing. They begin to praise God for all the miracles they have witnessed. They begin to get very excited. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they sing, quoting from Psalm 118. Of course, this is one of the Psalms that was associated with the festival of Passover. Jesus makes no attempt to silence them or tell them, or tell them off. When the Pharisees come to protest um, what, about what is taking place, um, Jesus says nothing. In fact, he says, if they don't sing, the very stones will sing instead. What is taking place here is the public recognition that the Messiah was coming to Jerusalem. The one who was descended of, of king, a descendant of King David has come to take his place on David's throne. Jesus is that king. And of course, he comes on the donkey, and that was a very well-known messianic 
prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, please turn this up. It's quite important. Page 955, I think, uh, in your church Bible. Zechariah 9, 9. Let me quote a chunk of this for you. This is the prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, daughter of, uh, sorry, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. This was a very, very well-known prophecy about the Messiah. And Jesus here publicly associates himself with this prophecy. He is fulfilling it. Here is the king who would come to bring salvation to Jerusalem. But what type of salvation were, were they expecting? See, again, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the expectations of the people are again confused. They see salvation in terms of overthrowing Roman occupation. The establishment of a new nation with Jesus as the king enthroned. But they fail to notice that Jesus comes on a donkey and he comes gently as the prophecy talks about. You see, military leaders, military leaders ride on horses into places that they conquer. Uh, the Roman leaders would have ridden into Rome on a great chariot pulled by great horses. It was a symbol of might, of imperial strength. In World War II, the Allies and the Axis forces, both when they took a city, drove in in huge tanks, a symbol of military might. In my own uh, tradition back home, King Billy is never depicted on a donkey. He rides a white horse on all the banners, even though that is not a historical fact at all, but that's what he does. But Jesus comes on a donkey, for he does not come as a military leader or conqueror. In Matthew's account, um, Matthew tells us that people waved palm branches, and of course that was a, had the association with nationalistic sentiment in the nation. But that's not the reason for Jesus coming. He comes with peace. Not as a military conqueror, but as the king of peace. The one who would bring peace to the city. He comes to offer God's people salvation and peace with God through his blood. And this is the idea that the people, and specifically the leaders, will fail to realize. The kingdom that Jesus claims is one which will bring peace to the nations. It will extend the whole world. It is not a national kingdom, but very much an international kingdom. It will not be limited to, to Jewish people alone, but extend to all people groups. Jesus is the king. 
the Messiah, and he now enters Jerusalem, the city of the king that David had built so long ago, the place where God's dealings with his people had been centered around for so long. But would he be welcomed? Would Jerusalem recognize their long-awaited king? Would they be what he want, what would he be what they wanted? And the very sad answer to that is that he would not be welcomed. And Luke records for us one of the saddest statements that Jesus ever makes in verses 41 to 44 as he approaches Jerusalem. He weeps over the city. Jesus knows that he as he comes to bring peace, the people will not accept it. There are so many ironies here for as the king of peace comes to offer peace to the city of peace. Remember, that's what Jerusalem's name means. Shalom, the, the, the Hebrew word for, for peace, Jerusalem. He comes to offer them God's peace and they will not accept it. Instead, great irony, they will have war. Jesus predicts that the city would be destroyed after a siege. He speaks about it here. The enemies would build siege embankments. They would dash the city to the ground. And of course, come AD 70, that is exactly what took place. The Jewish people revolted against the Roman occupation, and the Romans responded in turn with savage military might, and they destroyed the city. It was indeed a horrific time. And it comes about because, verse 44, they did not recognize the time of God's coming. And Jesus weeps. He comes with peace, but knows they will not accept him. He is the king who brings peace to his people, salvation for those who will accept him. Here is God's Messiah. And his own people fail to recognize him. But let me ask, have you recognized him? Do you know Jesus is the king? Has he brought you peace? Jesus would be a king who would reign not from a royal throne, but from a cross. And he would bring his people the ultimate peace. Peace with their maker. The removal of all hostilities between God and his people. Do you know that type of peace? But secondly, Luke records for us not only that Jesus enters Jerusalem, the city, he also enters the temple. The magnificent temple structure was a huge complex in the heart of the city on the Temple Mount. It was here that the priests would make sacrifices and, offer and offerings for the people. It was here that God's presence was said to dwell in the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. But the temple, of course, was not only for sacrifices and rituals for the Jewish religion, it was also for teaching. And as Jesus enters the temple, on the lead-up to the Passover, he is not very impressed with what he sees there. He begins to drive out the people who are selling and changing money. And this, I think, is probably the second time that Jesus has done this. In John's Gospel, he records for us an earlier incident where Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, does the same thing. 
But for Jesus, the priorities of what is taking place here are all wrong. He quotes from Isaiah 56, My house will be a house of prayer. Interesting that Luke doesn't actually give the full quotation. The full quotation is, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And it's likely that as he took what what was taking place here actually took place in the court of the Gentiles. That was the only place that the Gentiles, non-Jews, could come and be taught the word of God. That's what was supposed to be taking place. But with all the bustling and selling and exchanging of currency into temple coinage, that had all been forgotten. The priorities of these people were with money and material wealth. They were not concerned with teaching people the ways of God. Nor, might we add, was this the type of environment that would have allowed people to pray. No doubt that these services that they provided um, were necessary. People needed to be able to change that money. People needed to be able to buy sacrifices. But they didn't have to do it in the temple grounds. And so Jesus and his followers drive them out. Declaring... Um, in the words of one of Jeremiah's more famous speeches that they have created into a den of robbers. The priority of these people was to make money. And the authorities at the temple allowed it. This would have been sanctioned by them. And they most likely benefited from it as well. But Jesus' priorities are very different. For he enters the temple, and what does he do? He teaches. He teaches the people. His desire is that the people should hear God's word. But notice the contrast that Luke records for us. Jesus is in the temple teaching the people. The temple authorities are in the temple. And what are they concerned with? They're trying to get rid of Jesus. The chief priests, the lawyers, all those ones who were supposed to be teaching the people. They were the ones who were meant to be leading God's people in the faith. They were the ones who should have been concerned with the true worship at the temple, but they're only concerned with killing this rabbi from Galilee who's become a problem for them. It was this event, maybe more than anyone, that set the authorities and the leaders of the people against Jesus. And it would be Jesus' view of the temple that would play the biggest part in his show trial that would follow. And from this point, the tension in the story goes into overdrive. Jesus is now on borrowed time. The leaders of the Jewish nation want him out of the way. His messianic claims and his popularity with the people, notice verse 48, they cannot deal with it. They do not like it. They saw Jesus as just another rabbi from Galilee. His display coming into Jerusalem, that wouldn't have impressed them too much. In short, here was someone who was claiming to be the rightful leader of the Jewish people and they did not like it. He was a rival, and they were blind, and they could not see that the reason for Jesus' display coming into Jerusalem was the very fact that he actually was the Messiah. They failed to see that, and so we find a conflict 
a conflict of authority. The leaders in Jerusalem had authority as teachers and high priests to lead, but what authority had Jesus? What authority had Jesus to drive these people out of the temple courts? What authority had Jesus to act the way he did? To teach what he taught? And let's not forget that there was a very peculiar political balance. Um, As the religious leaders um, achieved between themselves and the Romans who were occupying the city. The Jews could continue with their traditions, and the Romans would leave them alone. The temple could continue with its rituals as long as they were obedient. They did not revolt or fail to pay their due respects to the Roman authorities. And now Jesus appears and makes open claims in public about the Messiah, stirring up people into what was quite likely a frenzy. Now make no mistake, thousands upon thousands of people were now heading into Jerusalem. The atmosphere at this time would already have been very highly charged. Middle Eastern folk are not stiff upper lip Brits. When they get excited, they get very excited. And the Romans would have been watching and waiting to see if there was trouble. The religious authorities did not need some country rabbi stirring up nationalistic sentiments and getting the people to revolt with claims about the Messiah having come. Jesus was a danger and he needed to be got rid of from their standpoint. So we find them coming with with this question of authority. Whose authority was Jesus acting under? Chapter 20, verse 2. And Jesus responds by asking a question of these officials as they come to him. He says, John's baptism, that is John the Baptist, was it from heaven or from men? In other words, what whose, whose authority did John do this from? Was it from God's authority or was it from his own? They can't answer for they know if they say from heaven and Jesus will merely say, well, why didn't you recognize it then? And do you not know that John has testified about me, that I am the Messiah? That's what Jesus would say. But if they say it was from men, then the people would stone them. For all the people held that John was a prophet sent from God. Notice here that these officials, notice they are not interested in finding out the truth. That is one thing they are not interested in. They have already made up their minds. They are not interested in finding out if Jesus really is the Messiah or not. All they want to do is try and trap him. Trap him and get rid of him. Jesus preaches the gospel to the people. Notice what Luke says there. He preaches the good news to the people. And the leaders of the nation are only interested in conspiring amongst themselves to get rid of their own Messiah. 
They do not recognize his authority or his claim to be the one sent by God. So since they are not interested in the truth, Jesus gives them no reply. He gives them the answer that they deserve. And now we have reached stalemate between the leaders of the people and Jesus. But you will see Jesus actually does answer their question, but he doesn't answer it directly to them. For he then goes on to teach his final parable in verses 9 through 19 of chapter 20. And he will teach where his authority comes from. For Jesus is not only the king entering Jerusalem or the Messiah entering his temple, but he is also the son entering his father's vineyard. He comes not with his own authority or even the authority of the Messiah. He comes with his father's authority to offer peace. The parable tells of a man who planted a vineyard and then he rents it out to some farmers to care for it and tend it while he goes away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants of the vineyard asking for some fruit that the vineyard had produced. But the tenants beat the servant, send him away empty-handed. Another servant goes and they treat him shamefully and beat him up as well. Another servant is sent again, and this time they wound him and throw him out of the vineyard. Now what Jesus, you see, is doing here as he is telling the story, he is telling the history of Israel using an allegory. Israel is the vine, the vineyard, a symbol that, of course, was used in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 6. The vine, the vineyard, stood for the nation, the people of God. The man who plants the vineyard is God himself, and the tenants, in this instance, are the leaders and rulers of the people. The servants, of course, are the prophets that God sent to his people. And throughout Israel's history, they have been shamefully treated. And, have not, and the leaders of the people have not listened to their ex- exhortations to turn back to God. Just as they had not listened to John in the wilderness. But what would the man do? That is the crisis point in the story. What would God do when his servants had been shamefully treated and the tenants would not listen to them? What would he do? Would he come with vengeance? Would he come and throw them out of the vineyard altogether? Surely he would be perfectly entitled to do that. No. Rather, the man sends his own son whom he loves in the hope that they will respect him. Notice the deliberate use here of son whom I love, which was the way the father spoke about Jesus at his baptism and transfiguration. Jesus has come to the vineyard, to Israel, with the offer of peace and reconciliation, even after the people in their long history, have continued to ignore and forsake God. They have abused his messengers, and even when he is angry, that anger is channeled into grace so that God sends his own son. 
in the hope, in the hope that now at last the people would listen, that they would return to him once more. But the tenants don't act like that. They don't act in repentance and express loyalty again to the owner of the vineyard. They see the sun coming and they plot. They plot to kill him. They know if, as the heir, he stands to inherit after his father is gone. So if they kill him, they have a better chance of claiming the vineyard as their own. So they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Jesus is talking here of his imminent death and showing that he knows what these leaders are thinking and what they're plotting. The son had come. He had come to bring good news. He has healed the sick and the lame. He has brought the kingdom, but the leadership are not interested. They want the inheritance themselves. They want ownership of Israel. The son's authority will trump theirs and Their aim is to get rid of it. So Jesus continues. What will the vineyard owner then do? He will come with vengeance and kill those tenants and give control of the vineyard to others. The tenants will be taken away and others, I think here, points to the Gentiles. They will be given charge of the vineyard of God's people. All that has taken place from Jesus' birth to his entry into Jerusalem for the last time has been an offer to the tenants of the vineyard, an offer of peace with God, an offer of salvation. And they refused to listen to the Son of God. And now, as Jesus had lamented, as he lamented on that donkey coming into Jerusalem, they will have war. They fail to recognize the day of God's coming. May this never be, the people cry. To which Jesus quotes at them Psalm 118 again, this time verse 22. Jesus is that stone that they have rejected. He is the capstone, the chief corner stone, the most important stone. And to reject him means the whole building falls down. And maybe more importantly, that stone will also be the stone of judgment. Verse 18. Immediately the teachers of the law and chief priests know that Jesus has spoken against them. They know that that parable was designed for them. And rather than seek repentance and fall at the Messiah's feet asking for forgiveness, asking for mercy, asking for the peace that he promises They seek to arrest, to arrest him and get rid of him. They would not listen to John in the wilderness. They ignored the miracles. They did not listen to Jesus' teaching. They hated the people he dined with. They failed to recognize him as the Messiah, the King of Israel, and they failed to see that God had come to his temple. The Son was in front of them. He came with the Father's authority. He came with the authority to forgive sins, to heal the sick, to seek and to save lost sheep. But the tenants of the vineyard wouldn't listen. They wanted it for themselves, and now it will be a matter of time 
Only a matter of time before they place him on trial and kill him outside the city. God had sent his beloved son out of grace and love. And now those who had hailed him king as he'd entered Jerusalem will soon shout that they have no king but Caesar at his trial and take him away to be crucified. And yet, as Jesus quotes, he he quotes from Psalm 118, we find that this is no accident. This is no tragedy. Well, it is a tragedy, but it's a planned one. For it all takes place in the fulfillment of God's plan. They would reject the Messiah, and in doing so, they would reject God and his authority. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us who sit here 2,000 years later? What is this historical event that Luke records for us in his gospel so long ago to do with you and me today? Why do we even need to know about this story? Well, the answer surely is that if these things are true, then this, this is the most important event in all of human history. This is the event which displays beyond all others the love, grace, and mercy of the creator of the universe towards his people. This is the supreme event and display of God's grace. That he would send his son to be rejected and hated so that we might be loved and accepted. That God would send his son to be the Messiah, the king who would reign not just over a Jewish nation, but rather who would reign over the whole world, a Messiah that still reigns today. He came as king to be killed in Jerusalem, to rise and conquer death, to reign over all the world. He is the sovereign one, the ruler of all God's creation. There is nothing outside of his domain. And to reject him is to suffer the same fate as those who rejected the chief corner stone. That stone that has the authority to judge and to rule. It cannot, it cannot be ignored with impunity. There is no part, no aspect of our existence that is not subject to his authority. And so the question remains for us, will we recognize that authority? Do we actively seek to submit to that authority? That authority which stretches over everything. Is Jesus the king of your life? Are you willing to let him have your life, your hopes, your future, your family, your marriage, your sex life, your bank accounts? Will you obey? Or will you seek to run your own affairs, do your own thing, live your own way, your life is your own? No one tells you what to do. There can be no neutrality in this. There is no fence on which you can sit. Either we reject or we accept the authority that Jesus comes with. 
an authority that came from God himself, an authority which can offer to people who are willing to repent and believe forgiveness for sins and new life in a new heavens and a new earth. Scribes and authorities in Jerusalem asked Jesus by what authority he did what he did. The answer they got, they were not willing to accept. What about you? Will you be willing to accept it? And are you ready to live under it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that in your grace and mercy and love and care for your people, that you sent your own Son, the one whom you love, into this world to be rejected that we might be accepted, to be hated that we might be loved, to taste death that we might have life, to know loneliness that we might be adopted into your family. Lord, as we meditate on the supreme act of grace, the greatest event in all of history, the supreme manifestation of your love for your people, Lord, we thank you and we ask your forgiveness for all those times where we have not recognized your authority. We have not sought to live our life under Jesus Christ. We have went our own way like sheep gone astray, like those who flout your commandments, who disregard your holy way. Father, forgive us. Father, grant that we might taste anew the grace that Jesus offers and live for him in this life and into eternity. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's finish by singing to that Christ whose authority we bow before.